tonight on Farage. It's the PM's big speech tomorrow to the Tory party conference in Manchester. I wonder, what do you hope to hear from him, other than build back better and levelling up, of which I've no doubt there'll be plenty. We'll analyse in a moment what was said today by the Health Secretary and the Home Secretary. Did they give speeches of any real significance? Or is this just wholly Boris's show? And joining me on Talking Pines, Royal Biographer Ingrid Seward. So it should have been a really big day at the Tory party conference because we had the health secretary, Sajid Javid. He'd done an interview overnight with The Guardian and giving his big conference speech. And after all, health has been a very dominant issue, not just through COVID, but as we come out of it and as we see massive five and a half million backlogs in operations on the National Health Service. And we'll talk a little bit tonight. Did he say anything that really inspired you to believe things will improve. And from the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, talking in general terms about immigration. And one of the big themes of this conference is that lower numbers coming into Britain mean higher wages. Well, yeah, we understand that. But in particular, when analyse her response to the over 17,000 people that have crossed the English Channel by boat this year, did she say anything today that will make any difference? And I'm afraid I think the answer is no, because what they've done with this conference, this is now the Boris Johnson show. He is completely and utterly in charge. And indeed, despite those two big speeches today, who was it dominating the airwaves this morning and at lunchtime and all the way through the day? It was the Prime Minister, even though his speech is tomorrow. And part of that, of course, was a GB News interview with Darren McCaffrey, and we'll talk to him tonight as well. And interestingly, the auditorium for the speeches in the conference hall is tiny, even for these big cabinet ministers, yet when Boris goes on tomorrow, they'll open it all up to be a really big audience. So it is very much the cult of personality. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, necessarily, but it is the cult of personality. They clearly believe that Boris is a winner, and he has proved in many ways electorally to be a winner. But what is he going to say tomorrow? Uh, well, he'll tell us, of course, that we're going to have completely clean energy by 2035, something that I think is wholly unrealistic. And I've no doubt he will bang on about build back better. I mean, just rather like Joe Biden does in America. And we'll hear this constant phrase of levelling up, uh, which I'm not sure I even understand what it is. Uh, what do I expect to hear from Boris Johnson tomorrow? Uh, nothing of any particular surprise. And I still very much stick with what I had to say to you last night, that out there in the country, we've got you know, millions of families worried about their relations getting operations, concerned they can't get GP health checks, struggling still in parts of the country to get enough fuel, uh, a crisis uh, at our borders, not just those coming into Dover, but those returning from business trips or holidays into our airports and facing massive queues. Inflation uh, running ahead very quickly. Shades, I think, perhaps of the 1970s in many ways. Uh, and yet, from Boris Johnson, it really is. Crisis, what crisis? Everything is absolutely splendid. So I'm asking you tonight, what do you hope to hear from the Prime Minister tomorrow? Let me know gbviews at gbnews.uk. Um, I know what I would like to hear. I don't expect we're going to hear anything any different to the briefings of the last couple of days. And I just, uh, 
get the feeling that with a Labour conference last week that hardly scintillated, uh, with a Tory conference this week talking about things uh, that frankly are not on the agenda uh, of most people living ordinary lives in Britain, it's almost as if politics is bypassing the people. There is a completely massive disconnect. Well, that's certainly my feeling. Now, one of the speeches today that really mattered was from Sajid Javid, the health secretary. Uh, as I've said earlier, you know, not just as health dominated our national debate with COVID-19, uh, and how interesting to see a variety of news reports today uh, coming from right across the political spectrum saying that the number of test kits, of PCR kits, that were ordered in Wuhan several months before we were told about the outbreak do indicate that maybe, just maybe, my friend Donald was right to call it the China virus. But we appear to be through the worst of that, thank goodness. But now we face a very different kind of health crisis. I found it astonishing overnight that when asked by The Guardian whether or not Sajid Javid would encourage people stuck on lengthy waiting lists to go private, he said this. No. That's always a choice for people that can afford it, but that's up to them. But it's not certainly something I would be recommending to anyone. He added, I don't want a situation where too many more people just stop because I want them to use the NHS. The NHS can manage it. Now, that really, honestly, is what he said overnight to The Guardian. Keep that at the front of your mind. Because this is what he also told the Tory party conference in Manchester just a few hours ago. And let's see if we can put the two together and whether it makes any sense. When I came in, I said I was not just the COVID secretary. I'm the health and social care secretary. There was no doubt about the biggest item that was spilling out of my entry an NHS waiting list that will get worse before it gets better, that was projected to grow as high as 13 million. No government, no health secretary, no society can accept that. That's why we have prioritised elective recovery. Checkups, scans, surgeries, with the biggest catch-up fund in the history of the NHS. So, if you're in your 80s, and you're waiting for a hip replacement or a knee replacement, and it's a two-year waiting list, the health secretary says, don't opt out and use the private sector because the NHS can cope. Just wait for another couple of years. And it strikes me that is completely and utterly the wrong way around. And once again, a government out of touch with reality. Yes, of course, not everyone can afford to get knee replacements, hip replacements, paid for by themselves, going through the private sector. But surely, Sajid Javid, surely you've got this the wrong way round. Surely you should say, given the record level of backlogs in the National Health Service, given the pressure that the whole system is under, that actually, what I would say if I was Health Secretary, is I encourage as many of you as who can afford to go privately to do so, to relieve the burden on the NHS so that we can seriously try to get this waiting list down. That, to me, would be the common-sense approach. And actually, that is what people increasingly themselves are voting for with their wallets. I think he's hopelessly out of touch. Well, let's get an opinion on this. I'm joined by Dr John Ford, an academic public health doctor 
at the University of Cambridge. Good evening and welcome, John, to GB News. Good evening. Now, you know, we, we've heard a lot today from Sajid Javid. We've heard that, you know, he'll sack inefficient managers of hospitals. But just before we get to that and the structure and the management of the NHS and the money that is needed to deal with this backlog, which, by the way, we're told could go from five and a half million waiting for operations to 13 million. Um, do I have a point in saying that if more people opt out of the NHS for relatively routine operations, that that would actually relieve the burden that we currently have? Well, I think fundamentally, this type of approach um, increases inequality. We've tried this before um, in Scotland in the, in the 2000s uh, with using more private health care. We found that people in poorer areas and older people were less likely to get appointments. So I don't think it's quite as simple as uh, just opening up the, the, the private sector. But if there are, if there are 100 people in a market town in England waiting for hip replacements... And if 30 of them decide to go privately, doesn't that give the other 70 a chance of having an, an operation before a two-year wait? The thing is that the NHS is already working with a number of different uh, private organisations, private hospitals, uh, to um, address the, the backlog. They, 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 this, is, this has been happening for years. Um, the idea that the NHS doesn't work with uh, private companies is just not true. Um, and the, the NHS is, 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 is very good, actually, at managing these efficiencies and ensuring that priority goes to those people who need it the most uh, rather than um, whoever's been waiting the longest. So if the NHS is very good at it, and I do understand we're just coming out of a, you know, a very difficult pandemic, if the NHS is that good at it, why do some people think the waiting list could rise to 13 million over the course of the next few years? Yeah, so the NHS is facing this unprecedented um, amount of... of um, backlog in terms of elective procedures, diagnostics. Um, it's nothing that the NHS has, um, has dealt with before. Yeah. We had a waiting list before we entered the pandemic. It's grown. Um, it's not going to be solved overnight. Um, but actually, there's, there's NHS plans in place in terms of elective hubs, diagnostics hub, to try and deal with this, this backlog. And I think actually the way to do this fairly and equitably is if we all buy into it, and we don't end up with a two-tier health system in the country. All right. Well, I think, you know, John, we'll agree to disagree on that, because uh, I just think the more people that opt out, the less pressure there is. Uh, but I do understand your point that, of course, the NHS is using private provision as much as it possibly can or where it suits. But to the bigger point about NHS management, you know, kind of, kind of what Sajid Javid is saying is that if certain hospitals don't get waiting lists down, he's going to sack the senior managers, and bring somebody in from business to take over. Uh, is that realistic within the NHS as it's currently structured? Uh, well, you, you know, I think Savage Avid missed a, a huge opportunity here um, during his speech. You know, we heard a lot about healthcare activity, a lot about appointments and operations. We heard almost nothing about prevention, about all making us healthier um, and, and living longer. Um, and this idea that actually um, the problem is at the feet of NHS managers um, just doesn't quite hold water. We, we know that the NHS is one of the most affordable healthcare systems in the world. It performs really well compared to other high-income countries. Um, and so actually pointing the finger at the NHS managers isn't particularly helpful. 
Undoubtedly, there's efficiencies that can be made. Undoubtedly, there's learning to be um, to be made from other industries and from other organisations. But actually, um, I don't think it's all that helpful. And I think a, a bigger focus on prevention and on um, trying to address this um, inequality gap we see across the country would have been would be more helpful. And finally, can I ask you? When I look at numbers that we get from, say, France and Germany, you know, I mean, countries on a very sort of similar living standard uh, to us uh, and, 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 and roughly similar amounts spent on health care. You know, we go above them, below them, but roughly similar. Is it fair to say that the French and Germans get better bang for their buck when it comes to cancer, heart and strokes? To be honest, we're, we're on a bit of a par. So um, the Commonwealth... Uh, fund uh, compared to living countries, high-income countries, which would be our comparators. Um, the NHS tends to come out number three or four out of 11. The US tend to perform um, dreadfully, so they tend to come bottom. And uh, the Scandinavian countries tend to come towards the top. And actually, the UK is um, upper middle um, compared to other countries. So we do, we do pretty well in the UK. Um, there's much more that we could be doing. And I think actually what we missed today was Savage Javid not talking about um, the things which actually make us healthy, which are um, having a good childhood, having a good education, having a meaningful job with good income, good housing, access to green space, and having a healthy lifestyle. And actually, I think more of that in the in the health secretary speech would be better rather than okay. focus on on disease and healthcare activity. It's a perfectly reasonable point of view, John Ford. Thank you for joining us here on GB News. Now, the other big speech um, that some of you might have expected me to lead with was the Home Secretary, uh, Priti Patel, uh, and she was talking about the migrant crisis, about what's going on in the English Channel and the fact that well over 17,000 people have been processed through the port of Dover so far this year. And this is important for lots of reasons. One, that she's been promising, you know, since August 2019 to get a grip and deal with this. Uh, but also that it's rising up the list of priorities of Conservative voters, particularly in the north of England. So let's take a look at what she promised in terms of securing our borders and tackling people smuggling. We are smashing the economic model of the people smugglers so that they can no longer profit from human misery. The current maximum penalty for entering the country illegally is six months. We're increasing that to four years. Under current maximum sentence for people smugglers right now is 14 years. We are changing that to life. And our new laws will speed up the removal of those with no legal right to be in our country. France is a safe country, not one riven by war or conflict. There is no reason why any asylum seeker should come to the United Kingdom directly from France. And I make no apology for securing our borders and exploring all possible options to save lives by ending these horrific journeys. Which is why, right from the start, Boris and I have worked intensively with every institution with the responsibility to protect our borders. Border Force, the police, the National Crime Agency, maritime experts, and yes, the military, to deliver operational solutions including new sea tactics, which we are working to implement to turn back the boats. 
Well, there she is, Home Secretary Priti Patel. You may have noticed, even though the audience was small, the applause was pretty lukewarm. Why? We've been hearing it over and over and over from Priti Patel. And when she says, I make no apology for securing our borders, well, you haven't secured our borders uh, at all. And then, of course, she says, oh, those that come in illegally by boat could face up to four years in prison. Really? Is that right? So you've got to find 17,000 prison places for the next four years. None of it is going to happen. And threatening people smugglers uh, with life imprisonment, well, to begin with, no-one believes they'd ever serve life anyway, and the financial rewards for these gangs are so massive, whatever the penalties, there will still be people there to ply this trade. And finally, my comment on what she had to say. She said, we will deport people who come illegally into our country... So far this year, we have not deported one single person who has come in across the English Channel. So I don't think her speech is worth a row of beans. I don't think it makes any difference whatsoever. But then, I accept, this is a story, an issue, around which I have strong opinions. So let's go to Tony Smith, former Director-General of UK Border Force. Uh, Tony, good evening, Thank you for joining us here on GB News. Um, I know that you're, you know, a full-time border security consultant these days. Um, tell me, will pretty have I got this wrong? Will pretty speech make a big difference to what's happening in the English Channel? Well, I think the first point, Nigel, is that you're right. There's nothing new in the speech today that we haven't heard uh, already before, and uh, you know, I have personally given evidence to the Home Affairs Committee and to the Bill Committee on this matter, written a lot of stuff about it. Um, the government's mission is a bold one because they are at least, uh, Nigel, trying to distinguish asylum seekers that come on, uh, say, third country routes from others. That hasn't been the case up to now. And they're doing that by reinterpreting Article 31 of the UN Convention. Prior to that, as you probably well know, Nigel, I'm sorry, I'm probably preaching to somebody who knows as much about this as I do because you were there. But as you know, there's been significant judicial overreach by the European Court of Justice on asylum judgments, which basically tied our hands in terms of anybody who arrived from anywhere, frankly, at our border, uh, merely had to mention the word asylum. And the border force are not empowered, Nigel, to do anything other than basic screening, uh, fingerprints, uh, checks and, and, and search, and then off they go into a system which, as you know, is unending. So what the, what the bill tries to do is say, well, actually, you're not immediately fleeing persecution, are you, from a war zone if you're coming and so our interpretation of that article is different to the one that the European courts have always done. And so therefore we're changing so we're changing our law. And I think you've got to give credit for that, Nigel, because I think of a lot of politicians who might balk from that. I expect this bill will have a lot of um, a lot of comment in the Lords, and there will be a lot of it in the justice system that we will be will be we trembling at the idea that we would simply say no. Uh, uh, you can't enter our asylum system uh, because you came on that route. And, and I've got a lot of opponents who, who will argue with me that it's not illegal to do this. So she's trying to make it illegal, Nigel, to do this. Okay. So I think we, we have to give credit for that. But, I mean, right. will it Fair work? Enough. No, Tony, I, you know, I'll take that point of her interpretation. Um, I've no doubt. In a moment, I'm going to talk to an immigration lawyer who may take a different view, as is often the case with legal interpretations. But the point, Tony, I'm making is that since August 2019, she's talked tough on this, 
And all that's happened is that it's got worse and worse. Uh, and now she's talking about turning around the boats. Now, look, I'd love to see the boats being turned around. And we saw Australia turning around the boats. But, you know, our border force, in your opinion, our border force actually going to turn these dinghies around? Uh, well, that's extraordinarily difficult, Nigel. Again, you know this very well. You've been out there. You know those waterways yeah. and you know these vessels. that are kind of, What the Australians did was quite different. That was a very, very long route from Indonesia. Um, the Australians actually re-equipped their fleet so they could interview people on board their vessels, Nigel. They actually towed out their own vessels and took the people off of the ones that they were in and put them into different vessels yeah. and towed them back and escorted them back to Indonesia. Very different operation to dealing with small people, uh, dinghies. You know, you know what's going to happen. You know what you'll be out there. I expect our media will be out there. And the moment that they try to do anything like this, babies will be thrown into the water. Yeah. We're dealing with human smugglers who have no regard for human life. The real answer, which I've been saying all along, is we have to get the French to agree to joint patrols, interdictions and returns. And I'm afraid we can't really control what they do. Nigel, we've got them to do quite a lot, and I do support the gendarmerie. If you've seen the pictures, they are out there in the sand dunes late at night getting beaten up by people, trying to stop them getting on. But the policy, as you well know, once they're on the water, the French government has said, au revoir, not our problem. Yeah, yeah, that which is nonsense, real isn't it? Which, Tony, yes. I, mean, I mean, France has very strict maritime laws. So if you or I had our own private boat... Say, say, moored in Boulogne Harbour, as there are hundreds of private boats and people go out angling or go out for pleasure, uh, they have to pass a series of tests. And if you're found at sea by the French authorities on a boat that has not done the right tests and you haven't got the right certificates, you know, you'll be towed back into port and given a very big fine. So for a French citizen or for us owning a boat in France, taking to those seas will get penalised. And yet what we have seen are migrant boats in three feet of water where they could have waded back to the shore, escorted effectively by the French Navy across the British lines. That isn't good enough, Tony, is it? No. You're spot on, Nigel. That is the problem. They are using their interpretation of maritime law, which is frankly wrong, to exercise their policy requirement, which is to say, this is not our problem. This is, And that is a political decision by the French government. There is provision in international law, Nigel. I could bore your listeners for hours talking about the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, but there is provision, certainly, for us to come to an agreement with them, but they won't. And I think therein lies the problem. Tony, we'll talk to you again because this story isn't going away. Thank you for joining us tonight on GB News. Well, let's now go to Ivan Sampson, an immigration lawyer. Um, Ivan, you saw, you saw what the Home Secretary had to say today um, and Tony Smith was mentioning a different interpretation of Article 31 of the UN Convention. Uh, do you see this making any real difference? No, I mean, it, it, uh, her interpretation is unlawful, quite simply, because Article 31 underscores the recognition that asylum seekers quite often flee persecution with little or no evidence, no documents, no proof, quite often no passports even. So what she's saying is that if you haven't, if you're not fleeing persecution and there's no evidence to support that, you must be an economic migrant. And this, this underpins what she said earlier today, that nearly all the people 
waiting in Calais to come to the UK are economic migrants. So it's her misinterpretation of Article 31. But, um, another point she makes is that we're collapsing the refugee system, the asylum system is collapsing. It's simply not true. Um, we took the latest figures, 26,000 refugees, um, asylum application would turn into refugees. Germany uh, accepted 161, four-fifths more. France, 100,000. But that's there. So it's just simply... That's there. You know, however many Germany accept doesn't mean we have to accept. And can you understand, Ivan, why uh, many of us are pretty sceptical about whether these people are refugees or the vast majority, given that 90% of them are young men under the age of 30 uh, who appear to have very, very nice uh, trainers, iPhones. I mean, come on, you know as well as I do, the vast majority of people that are coming over the channel are economic migrants. No, we don't know that, Nigel. I mean, unless you've got a crystal ball, you don't. Um, and so what we have is an asylum process system. We're members of the 51 Refugee Convention. The Refugee Convention makes no that there's nothing in the convention which forces a refugee to claim asylum in the first country they go to. That's a member of the convention. It's simply not. We're members of it. We either uphold our obligations under the convention or we come out of it. Quite yeah. frankly, that would not be British, to, to not to well, give protection. Well, it's not very British being walked all over, is it? But we're not. That's the point. Um, we've had this conversation before. I know. Um, there's 18 million refugees out there, Nigel. 14 yeah. million children. We accepted 3,000. So we're not doing our bit, I'm afraid. Um, we, we need to. I mean, most people make complaints about the cost of refugees. The reality is we give refugees £5.64 per day to live on. Well, we give them free... Clothes, oh, come clothing. on, Ivan. Come on, Ivan. We give them free accommodation, three square meals a day, dental care, medical care. We do, we do give them quite a lot. Ivan, listen, I'm well, out of time on this, but do come back. It is do come back and argue this with me, because clearly the Home Secretary is trying to, to, to change the interpretation uh, of Article 31, and there is the policy also turning around the boats. So, Ivan, come back on. We'll debate it again with you. Now... Darren McCaffrey, our political editor, has done an interview with Boris Johnson. Darren, did he just endlessly say, build back, back, build back better and levelling up? Or was there some other substance in there? Well, you know, in some ways, trying to pin Boris Johnson down, Nigel, it's a bit like trying to nail jelly to the wall. Quite difficult, never easy. Um, and it is interesting is that there are some big, massive challenges uh, facing the country at the moment. We know there is uh, rising inflation that's going to lead to higher prices. Energy prices, of course, being a big part of that. But also this shortage, essentially, of uh, drivers, yeah. uh, which has meant that there have been supply issues uh, fundamentally. And it is a big, big issue uh, for the government. And my kind of point to him was, well, first of all, you should have seen this coming. We, we know there's been a shortage for, for many, many uh, years on this. And, and frankly, you know, can the government do any more to kind of mitigate uh, the damage that it is causing? And this is what Boris Johnson had to say to me in that interview a little earlier today. The, the, the fuel is getting to the forecourts. I think we've had above weekly uh, delivery rates for a while now, above daily delivery rates for a while. It's a problem of uh, that. So the supply side is, is being fixed. It's the demand side. It's people, you know, very human reaction to, to what they see on the news. 
going to, to fill up. And I, you know, I just urge everybody to so, 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 just so, go about their business so, in the normal way. Sorry to push this point, but like, we've known for years, you're right, there's a shortage of lorry drivers in this country. We've known certainly for months there's going to be a really crunch point this autumn. And yet the government seems to be entirely reactive. No, what, what, why, why not recognise that this is going to happen? About it's it? not the job of government to um, come in and uh, try and fix every problem in business and industry. Uh, we have fantastic supply chains in this country. We have surely fantastic. We have fantastic. Surely we have fantastic uh, supply chains. Fantastic logistics. There is a problem of demand. Uh, really interesting, isn't it? Uh, listen to the Prime Minister there, kind of explaining a way that he doesn't think it's the government's role, Nigel, to be involved in kind of every single business, which is a pretty conservative place uh, to be in, in many regards. Uh, but again, he keeps aiming for this kind of sense of uh, trying to uh, turn the country, he would argue, post-Brexit to a high-wage uh, economy. That, of course, has consequences. We're seeing, for example, that you know people who are being paid 30 quid an hour to pick uh, Brussels sprouts uh, and broccoli and, you know, Frankly, that's great for them, but it also means that those costs for businesses will at some stage probably have to be passed on uh, to consumers. We also talked about uh, energy because he, he was talking about fuel there, of course. We saw those panic buying uh, last week. And again, interestingly, he, he kind of alluded to the fact about how this country at the moment is pretty reliant actually on energy sources outside of the UK, not least of all Russia. Have a listen. Deal with the cost of energy. You'll do a, at the moment, we're vulnerable to Russian gas prices. Yeah. So what they decide to do in the Kremlin impacts us in the, in the UK. We've got to be much smarter than that. So we're investing in, uh, in clean green energy of all kinds. And that, is, and that will help. And, and, and admittedly, in the longer term, that will hold down the cost of energy. Well, Darren, thank you for that. We'll talk to you tomorrow after the PM's big speech. But I think he's kind of teased uh, much of what he's going to say. And I, I must repeat what I said last night. He appears to be completely out of touch with ordinary families. But, Darren, we'll see you back here tomorrow. In a moment, we'll talk about that driver shortage as the Prime Minister's big appeal for European lorry drivers to come back to the UK is met by a somewhat paltry response. So what do you hope to hear from Boris Johnson in his big speech tomorrow? Your reaction, Steve on email says, I would like to hear Johnson say that he is resigning. Well, there isn't much chance of that, Steve, I can promise you. There really isn't. Um, Dave on email says, let's hope Boris's levelling up includes pensions. You cannot live under the current pension system. No chance of that. Camilla on email says, I hope Boris will assure the Conservatives that taxes will come down again as soon as possible. Camilla, he's not going to do that. He won't even rule out further increases. Jane says she wants to hear, love to hear him say some practical solutions to the NHS waiting list, the fuel crisis. We can't go on hearing empty words. Build back better and levelling up. That's what you're going to hear. I want to hear, says Darren, that I will not have to queue for three hours to get fuel and four years to see a GP. Well, let's get on to that driver shortage because I think there's been a lot of analysis um, about these problems, but I wonder, maybe it's time we started looking for a few solutions. Well, joining me now is John Manners-Bell, Chief Executive Officer uh, of... In transport intelligence and an expert on global supply chains and logistics. John Manners-Bell, welcome. Thank you for joining us here at GB News. 
Thank you very much for inviting me, Nigel. So, you guys have been warning government, I believe, for some time that there was a major yeah. problem coming down the tracks. Absolutely. For a, probably about 15 years, we've been seeing that there's been a driver shortage. And not just in the UK, this is a global problem. Uh, and in Europe, we're seeing that there are at least 400,000 uh, drivers short. So, uh, you know, we've, we've been caught up in it, but uh, it's certainly a, a European-wide problem, to say the very least. And is this, is this because, as I suspect, there's been a race to the bottom in terms of pay and conditions for HGV drivers that's just simply made it an unattractive job to do. Yeah, that's exactly what has, has happened over over the years. You know, from being um, um, a job with high esteem, as it certainly was uh, yeah. maybe 30, 30, 40 years ago, you know, now over the years it's been eroded, the, the paying conditions have, have got worse. And uh, the, the the esteem that the drivers have held, been held in has also gone gone down. And uh, what's happened over the last few years, as uh, UK nationals have gone out of the uh, gone out of the industry, the, they've become old, they've retired, they've been replaced not by younger people coming through, but the industry has looked to cheaper uh, replacements from uh, from particularly from Eastern Europe over the last uh, 15 years or, or so. And of course, those, those people have been very uh, willing to work for much lower wages than, uh, than the UK equivalents. Yes, but now, uh, you know, in this crisis, which we haven't done much about until it's come upon us, uh, appealing for drivers to volunteer from Europe and the Prime Minister today are forced to admit that in the first week of this opening up of this scheme, only 127 drivers have applied. So there isn't much salvation coming from that quarter. I saw the army boys out uh, in Kent um, and, and it was great to see them. But of course, only a couple of hundred of army drivers have been put in. Isn't the problem, John? Isn't the problem at the DVLA? Isn't that at the heart of what needs to be done to solve this crisis? There, there are many different factors behind uh, the driver shortage, and that is one of them. Yeah, absolutely, uh, during the COVID crisis, there were there were no HGV tests being uh, conducted, and so consequently, we've lost thousands of new drivers. We've stopped them from entering the the industry. So, yes, that they, that will have to be streamlined as as we move forward. And tell me, do you think the Transport Secretary, Grant Shapps, has a grip on this situation and will make sure people get turkeys for Christmas? There are, there are some things which government can do. There are some things that government can't do. I, I think Boris uh, alluded it to, uh, to it in, in your uh, previous, you know, it's not the government to, to fix all these problems. The industry has got to look very, very uh, closely at itself, not just the, the road haulage operators who've been uh, willing to use very, very cheap labour, but also the manufacturers and retailers who have been pushing them down on price. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a market issue which will have to be fixed. But there are some things which the government can do and that is, for example, encourage more people into the industry by uh, by in paying for much of their training. It costs about five thousand pounds, up to five thousand pounds, to get an HGV license. You see, at the moment, thousands of young people going to university to do uh, degrees which may or may not be useful. 
you know, the, they ought to bring back, in my view, uh, more funding for vocations such as lorry drivers, for example. They need to build more truck stops. Yeah. You know, part of the reason why uh, only 1% of the driving community are, are, are women is because of the dreadful conditions the, in terms of hygiene and security that truck drivers have to endure. So there are, there are many things which the government can do if they are going to help fix the crisis. But it's, yeah, it's they, down to industry. And they've been living like this and earning 11 quid an hour uh, and stuck with a series of European regulations that make them sleep on roadsides. John, I, I think we've all, you know, over the last couple of weeks come to understand uh, that this is a group of people that have been severely undervalued, uh, great responsibility, considerable risk, and I want you, please, to promise you will keep the pressure on the government to once again make this a respectable, well-paid profession. So I'm, I'm sure you will, won't you? Absolutely. Thank you, Nigel. Good. Thank you for coming on. Now, Insulate Britain. Yes, my favourite group. And wasn't that absolutely shocking yesterday to hear the guy that had founded Extinction Rebellion saying it would be quite right to block an ambulance. Just unbelievable. I, I was thinking overnight, actually, that actually makes them eco-terrorists if they're prepared uh, to see people's live, lives risks. So they've been blocking the motorways and roads over the course of the last several days. Um, and today, uh, you know, after all those terrible scenes that we saw yesterday, uh, today they have finished up actually in court. Um, there's been some apology for the disruption they caused. Um, but, you know, frankly, their behaviour is totally unacceptable. Uh, irresponsible crusties is what the Prime Minister calls them. The Home Secretary has vowed to get tough. Yeah, I'm bored by hearing that. Um, and earlier today, the High Court uh, served 111 of them now with injunctions. So, have we seen the last of Insulate Britain? Well, I've heard about injunctions before. I've heard about the government talking tough. I suspect uh, that they haven't yet stopped and I'm tired of government talking tough and delivering very little. Okay, in a moment we're going to be doing Talking Pines with Ingrid Seward who is a proper expert on the royal family. So we're here in the GB News pub, and I'm joined on Talking Pints by the editor-in-chief of Majesty magazine and royal biographer, Ingrid Seward. Ingrid, welcome to Thank Talking Pints. Thank you very Pines. much. It's good to have you here. Very nice to have a drink. Yeah, on TV, and we're allowed. Hey, <laughs> hey. But, but, but the whole point of this is we want to have a proper conversation, and it's kind of what people do, isn't it? They have a drink and they talk to each other. So I want you to tell people about Majesty magazine, because not everybody necessarily that is watching now knows about it. So it's basically to do with everything to do with not just our royal family, but royal families around the world. It certainly is. And it started, I mean, it started in 1980. Can you believe that? You probably weren't even born then. Oh, yes. don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> um, it started in 1980 with the Queen Mother's 80th birthday. Okay. And... Because of the advent of Diana, it really took off. I mean, I wasn't working for it then, but it really took off. And it was... So, the, 81, think, the royal wedding? Yeah. So, it, it was... Um, there was no colour supplements in those days, apart from the Times. Uh, the Sunday Times is the only magazine to have a colour supplement. And there were all these amazing pictures of the royal family. Mm. And these two brothers, who... who both are now no longer with us, sadly, um, decided, well, 
let's put a colour magazine together using some of these great pictures. And all the photographers used to come in to the office in, in Highgate and bring their photographs. And these two guys, you, you'd appreciate this, they'd put it together in the pub. Well, quite right, <laughs> too, absolutely. So Diana... Yeah, so Diana, say, 81, the, the, her, her marriage to Charles. Um, and Diana brings some extraordinary glamour, doesn't she, into the royal family? I think she, she brought a, a huge interest that wasn't there before. Mm. And, and this incredible glamour. And, of course, nobody knew that it was going to go quite so mad as it did. And the Queen sort of said to her, well, don't worry, you know, it'll all, it'll all smooth down. And, of course, it just got bigger yeah. and bigger and bigger. And ended disastrously and tragically. But you've, as somebody that's, 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 that's you know, written about, followed the royal family, and you got to know the royal family, or, or some of them. Uh, and, of course, your late husband, Ross, who was a great journalist, um, he was, he was, I was saying he was at Gordonston with... He was at Gordonston, yes, everybody. He let everybody know that. Yeah. He was at Gordonston with, with Prince Charles. Yes. In the same class. Yes. And, um... They became sort of vague, vague friends. I'm sure, knowing Ross, you know, that, as I did, that he made sure he became friends with Prince Charles. But, in fact, he, 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 he loved Gordonston. I mean, my husband loved yeah. Gordonston. And he said that, uh, that, that they was just... Charles had a really hard time there. Because people would... I, I, if you were friendly with Charles, they accused you of being a sycophant. And if you weren't friendly with him, they said you were a bully. And Charles did get bullied there. And there's one story that I really love, and I only discovered this much, much later, because Ross wrote an article for Woman's Own when he, when he left, <laughs> all about my, my school days with Prince Charles, so you can imagine he was so persona non grata. I bet he was. Oh, he really was in those days. And he tells this wonderful story, because Prince Charles used to snore. And he was, <laughs> like, and he was in, a, in, a, in a bunk, or in a bed, you know, one of those sort of wrought iron beds right by the open window, which was kept open winter and summer. So the boys in the sort of dorm above put down a little uh, speaker attached to a tape recorder and they recorded him snoring. I mean, can you imagine? <laughs> but of course they did. Of course they did. But it yeah. was quite a clever idea, actually. And they were going to flog the tape. This is the future king snoring. Mm. Well, how can you imagine when the uh, headmaster found out? I mean, they, they weren't flogged because that didn't happen at Gordon's. And they, they, were, they had a severe telephone. I bet they did. And naturally the, the tape was confiscated. So somewhere in this world it still exists, this <laughs> tape of our future king snoring. And is our future king a friend of yours? I wouldn't like to say that any of the royal family are real friends of mine because they don't, they are, you know, they're only really friends within themselves. And anyone that thinks they're a friend of the royals isn't really. You'd appreciate that, wouldn't you? You'd understand yeah. that. Yeah, no, I do. I mean, I, I had a bit of a fallout with him. Um, he turned up at the European Parliament. Oh, I remember that, yeah. yes. As 2005 or six. So Charlie turns up at the European Parliament, gives a big speech to the MEPs. Um, basically says that the European Union needs to have more power, what? Um, and that the North Pole will be gone within seven years and we're all facing catastrophe, we're all going to die um, unless the European Union has more power. And I thought, well, this is very odd. Uh, this is a future king um, asking for more sovereignty to be given to the... So I refused, because of standing ovation. Standing ovation for what he'd said. And I refused to stand up. And I have met him a couple of times since. And to be fair... 
he's got a sense of humour. You know, he has. You know, he knows that he, he knows that we have rather different views. <laughs> but he probably appreciates that. I think way. he's. A, I mean, I, I think he's an alarmist, and he probably thinks I, I'm. You know, I'm not alarmed enough. But I just and yes. So look, polite, friendly, good sense of humour. I've seen that firsthand with him. But does he have the connection with the people that's needed to be a king? I think he does. Do you really? I know. I know politicians don't particularly, but I think I am a big fan. I think he really cares in a way that someone that wasn't in his position wouldn't have the ability to do. He really, really cares about our future. He cares about us. <coughs> he cares about the way things look. I mean, it's all very old-fashioned. He talks to plants. He's a bit wet, really, isn't Everybody he? talks to plants. Do they? Oh, oh, yes, gosh, Maybe I'm missing do. out. Maybe, yeah. maybe it's... Maybe, I maybe think you should have a chat maybe with plants. But he comes across as being a bit wet sometimes. No, he doesn't. No, 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 I will stand up for him. I am such a big fan of his. I think... I think he's having a, had a very difficult time because he's he's constantly sort of uh, overshadowed by the ghost of Diana. Mm. And I think Diana would hate that because she said to me, and this is... She did actually say this to me. She said that, that, that she still had a great fountain of love for Prince Charles despite everything. And she would hate the way that she is being perceived as being this person that's stalking him now. Interesting. And she also And he said does to seem me, happy with Camilla, doesn't he? Genuinely. She also said to me, which I could never quite work out, it wasn't Camilla that ruined our marriage. And I thought, what am I hearing? Mm. She said it was the people around Prince Charles. They're so sycophantic, they never say no to him. Mm. And that's what's ruined our situation. And I thought there's a big element of truth in that. But now we have now we have Prince Harry and Meghan, who appear to be not just mad with money lust, but actually intent on destroying the institution. I just don't understand where Harry's head is. Because he, we all loved him, and he was like everybody's slightly wayward son. And he wanted to... Well, we like... He was Jack the Lad, wasn't he? He was, and he wanted to hug him, and he said, oh, I don't like the press. And he said, oh, darling, I understand, you know, but you've got to do it. And mm. he was just... He was... I suppose he was very childlike, really. He's not very bright, and I think he would probably admit that. He's not. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. And she's clearly quite domineering. And she is clearly quite domineering. But I think, uh, reading into the whole situation, Harry <coughs> wanted out of the royal family a long time ago. He just didn't know how to do it. Because when he was in the army, he said, I, I do remember ages ago, he said, I just wish I wasn't a prince. Mm. And I remember Jilly Cooper coming up and saying, what a tragic thing for this mm. boy to say. Mm. Here, here he is in this life of incredible privilege that none of us will ever know anything like. And you're not prepared to take on the responsibility. Well, they just walked away, didn't they? And they planned to walk away. And I think that is what, so I think, sad I, I tell, you what, tell you what disgusted me, Ingrid. I, a friend of mine, ex-Royal Marine, said there was a big Royal Marine dinner fundraising dinner for veterans that Harry was supposed to be at. He cancelled a week before. That can happen in busy diaries. But the same night that Royal Marine dinner took place was the night that he was in Leicester Square overheard talking to the boss of Disney, asking whether his wife could get some voiceover work. And so, you know... Oh, that's not good. So, you know, there he was, Lieutenant General of the Royal Marines, a very privileged position. They've all turned against him. And I, frankly, we've got the Diamond Jubilee coming up next... Uh, uh, sorry, the Platinum Jubilee coming up next year. Big moment. 
Will Harry and Meghan come back for it? I think they will, because I think they need to. I think in order to keep this incredibly sort of <coughs> magic persona that they appear to have in America, they need to be seen mm. to be sort of hobnobbing with... I'm not sure that magic persona's going to last over there. I, I could be wrong. Maybe on the West Coast it will. I, I just don't know. I don't really understand how America works anymore. Nor does America anymore. No, I don't think America understands it either. <laughs> but I, I just do, do know that there's a, a whole bunch of Americans that don't like Harry and Meghan at all, and there's a whole bunch of Americans that absolutely love them and they can do no wrong, and the twain will never meet. Mm. Mm. And it's a, quite an ugly situation. Strange. Very strange. And, and, and finally, Ingrid, some final thoughts. Uh, the Queen, astonishing person. I mean, all of us that meet her are, to some extent, in awe of her. I think that's true. I... Donald Trump, who is... Oh, I know you're pally with him. But, but, no, I am. But I'll tell you something. For him, meeting the Queen, I mean, when I spoke to him afterwards, he was almost childlike with excitement. It meant so much to him, because his mother had been a Scot and a great royalist. Uh, just, just give me a few final thoughts on, on the Queen as she approaches 70 years on the throne. I think that she... Ha, she was brought up uh, in, in an era that, where you never, ever showed emotion. Yeah. Um, so she's stoic. She's completely stoic. Behind the scenes, she's got a wonderful waspish sense of humour, which people have, have seen a bit now. Um, she's very funny. She's always been surrounded by gay staff, if you like. I, I don't know if we're allowed to say that. We are, yeah. We are. Uh, and she has almost what I would think. <laughs> she's got that kind of humour. She's so quick and so funny. Mm. And she has huge interests. You know, her, her racing and her horses are really mm. keep her going. And I think that the Queen, a bit like her mother, you know, if something is really she can't deal with, she just doesn't. And it's going to be a big year next year, isn't it? It's going to be a big year for her next year. It's going to be very tiring. Mm. But, I mean, she, she will be determined that she's going to get through it and enjoy it. Well, you keep covering it for us. That was Ingrid Seward joining us. And it will be a big year next year, 70 years, the Queen on the throne. The last part of the show, it's Barrage the Farage. You send your questions in, I don't see them before. Here goes. Philippa asks, if you could implement three government policies immediately, what would they be? Oh, gosh, the first thing. The first thing that I would do uh, would be to bring back proper vocational training for all young people, probably from the age of about 14, to make sure that trades and skills started to get the respect they deserve in our country, rather than being downgraded and sending off all our kids to get ologies, which, frankly, are pretty useless to them. The second thing I would do is do whatever I could to free regulations off the backs of five million men and women out there running our small businesses. And all we seem to do is want to punish them and make them pay more tax. And the third thing I would do is make sure we honour, honour the Brexit promise of controlling our borders. Now, we're coming towards the end of the show. One or two of you emailed in and said, what's this tie? I'll tell you what it is. These are the national colours of Belize. Belize, of course, a Commonwealth country. And one of the reasons I wanted Brexit, and one of the reasons I think the Queen wanted Brexit, is so that we can be closer with our Commonwealth friends. So any of you out there from the Commonwealth, if you want to send in ties from your country, I will wear them and advertise them, because I think the Commonwealth is a great future for all of us. Right, coming up next, it's Colin Brazier. I'm back tomorrow. First, though, let's have a look at the all-important weather. <laughs> 